Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, screenwriter Christy Wilson Cairns, whose latest, Last Night in Soho, is out Friday. She previously earned an Oscar nomination for co writing 1917 with Sam Mendes. And I'm going to skip a lot of the biographical stuff because she tells her own story much better than I ever could, and we'll do that in just a moment. But I will tell you that Last Night in Soho, which she co-wrote with the film's director, Edgar Wright, is about a young fashion student named Eloise, played by the always excellent Thomas and Mackenzie, who is obsessed with the 1960s. When Eloise rents a room in London's fashionable and storied Soho district, she begins dreaming of a young aspiring singer named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, and she's transported back to a lavish, swinging Soho of decades past, where she learns what everyone always learns about all the glitters. Matt Smith also stars as a mystery man who takes an interest in Sandy's singing career, and Diane Rigg, fabulous in her final role, plays Eloise's extremely strict landlord. Last Night in Soho is one of my favorite films of this year. All the acting, the look, everything about it is just spectacular. And my interviews with Wright, Mackenzie, and Wilson Cairns make up the cover story of the latest issue of Movie Maker Magazine, which is out now. I highly recommend the film, but I also think you'll enjoy this talk if you're interested in the kind of very ambitious screenwriting that is a Christy Wilson Cairns trademark. We get pretty deep, for example, into the mechanics of writing 1917. I spoke with her a few weeks ago after Last Night in Soho, which premiered at the Venice International Film Festival, played at the Toronto International Film Festival. Here's Christy Wilson Cairns. So welcome to Movie Maker. Congratulations on Last Night in Soho, which just premiered at Toronto? Yeah, yeah. Two nights ago. Yes, I'm still recovering. <laughs> How was the reception? Oh, it was amazing. It was, it was, you know, it's so lovely to see it in North, like North America with an English speaking audience because Venice was great, but obviously, you know, with subtitles and everything, sometimes like some of our little pithy jokes might have been lost in translation. But no, getting, getting to watch it here, and especially because Toronto... Um, they love Edgar. I think Edgar's one of their favorite um, adopted sons because he shot Scott Pilgrim here. So yeah, it was it was lovely and warm and and just very fun. And also a few people got quite scared, which I love. <laughs> nice, very nice. Yeah, I saw it alone in a theater for the initial screening, and then we just went and saw the card counter the other night in a theater. And just when the trailer came on for Soho, there were some other trailers that didn't really land. And then that one comes on and it just really plays. It's just such a big, beautiful movie. Oh, so. thank you so much. I mean, I think like with the soundtrack and amazing cast and incredible director, it's nice to work in as a writer, kind of working with those guys, lovely. <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to talk about how you became a screenwriter because it's kind of a wild story. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, so I, I, I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland as my accent, my very subtle accent might give away. Um, and the I loved like I mean look it rains a lot in Scotland I spent a lot of time indoors in front of the TV watching movies uh, my grandparents and my mum raised me so we went to the cinema a lot because um, they loved it too and um, yeah one day I was walking down um, near those sort of govan docks where we actually eventually shot a part of 1917 but I was 14 and this was long before um, and I saw that they were making a TV series called Taggart like they were shooting it there and I'd never seen a film set before and I wasn't aware that it was going to be so many white vans. <laughs> um, I was like totally taken aback by it. But someone told me that this was this was a like a TV show being shot and I just was like moth to flame 
drawn over to it and it was the summer holidays and I went back every day and I used to just go in because it was like pre-security and I don't think anyone was that bothered about a kind of like tomboyish 14 year old coming around that was a bit lanky and couldn't steal anything um so yeah I ended up kind of asking all the different departments like what they did how it worked you know I remember kind of like talking to the camera team and being like why do you why do you keep moving the camera around like just just genuinely kind of like bombarding these nice people with questions and they were so lovely they answered all of them I went back day after day and then eventually they were like well if you're going to be around here why don't you get some coffee like why don't you can you go and pick us this up from like the news agent on the corner can can you do this like can you drive it and I'm like no I'm 14 and they were like oh okay um, and I went back like every summer holiday and then the AD team asked me to help out on one of the um, com- like a Vodafone commercial that they were doing that they were shooting in Glasgow and they were like we just need you to stop people walking across this street we get a walkie talkie and a high-vis vest and I was like sign me up so I did that like like summer holidays like you know random weekends like any break that I had from school and I kind of I wanted to go and study physics because I'm a massive nerd but like right before university, I kind of said to my mom, I was like, I think I really like being part of filmmaking. And I, I think I'd like to continue doing that. And my mom, to her great credit, was like, yeah, follow your bliss, kid. Like, do what makes you happy. She's like, you can always go and be an engineer in five years. Like, you're not on a clock, um, which was really nice. So it totally liberated me. The only thing she said to me was, would you please go to, to, to university? Because my grandparents, you know, they'd spent all their money on my education. Like I went to I went to private school and it was like part scholarship, part them. So it was very much like they were like, she was like, please do this for them and for me. Uh, so I went to the Royal Scottish Academy or now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. It's got a fancier name. And I studied filmmaking, digital film and television was the course. And um, and it was great. And I kind of was like really into camera. They had a red camera there, which was one of the reasons I went. And this, you know, this was like 12 years ago. So a student having a red camera was like a big deal. And um, and then one day we had to do a, a screenwriting unit. It was like part to graduate. You had to go. And I, I remember bitching to my friends being like, oh, I didn't come to film school to write essays. No, I want to be like, oh, put a camera in my hand. I'm, I'm a filmmaker. Such such a may I swear on this oh yeah such an asshole I was a big (laughs) asshole um and then um I sat down in the very first kind of screenwriting lecture and our our lecturer Richard Smith said oh just this weekend I'd like you to go away and write a story it doesn't have to be in script form just a beginning a middle and end like let's just see what you can do and I thought oh I'm gonna kind of take the piss with this like I'm gonna write something stupid and a bit funny and I I I had a guinea pig at the time that whistled a lot. And I used to think it was plotting the death of me and my family. Because <laughs> um, I'm a weirdo again, real weird. And so I wrote this story about these two guinea pigs deciding to push their owner down the stairs. Really weird, totally. Like <laughs> my mum read it afterwards and was like, you're a weird kid. And I handed it into Richard. But in the writing of it, like I, I sat down on like a Sunday morning, like begrudgingly starting to do it maybe like 10 a.m. and like by 5 p.m. it was like time travel. Like I had I had just kind of like suddenly finished writing and I was like, oh my God, it's nighttime. And I had so much fun. I'd really, really enjoyed myself. Um, and I got really into it. And so I remember going into the class on the Monday and like handing this in and being really embarrassed because I'd kind of like, I was like, oh, actually this is great. And I've kind of like, I've embarrassed myself a little bit. Like, and I and I, I handed it in to, to Richard Smith and he then like read it and he was like, okay, you can write. So like next week I would like another story. <laughs> and so, he, and he just kept doing it. And then like, and then I would get like extracurricular. He would be like, um, write me a bank heist, 
write me a scene in a bank, write me this. And he taught me structure and form. And then at the same time at that school, I was really fortunate that we had a film theory class. And that like massively introduced me to like, not so much foreign film, because we watched a lot of foreign film at home, but it introduced me to like kind of obscure films, like, you know, it's like, like, German expressionist Weimar Republic films and stuff like that like all these kind of things that you wouldn't necessarily consume as like a 19 year old living in Glasgow um and in that and then so that pretty much within six months that year I was like so camera's harder than I want it to be and I have to get up early but screenwriting is like such a ball I can do it from home and I get up at 10 a.m so I was pretty much totally sold on screenwriting and then very fortunately like Richard and the entire Andy Dugan, all the lecturers there like massively kind of took me on as a project and got me ready to go on to do my master's at the National Film School. Mm. I got there, I did two years of my master's degree. I worked in a bar called The Tukin, which is actually in the film Last Night in Soho. And I'm in that scene, <laughs> you yes. see my arm, not my face, because I'm a terrible actor, um, <laughs> really bad. Edgar was like, just stop staring directly at the camera. I was like, Mm. Um, so so yeah um, I worked there and I got an agent in my final year of film school I wrote a film called Ether that um, just a script it it never got made Uh, got onto the blacklist and like Brit list hit list like all these lists and I went out to America with that and signed with CAA because they I just really liked them in the room my agents uh, John and Tiffany were just like they were the kind of people that don't talk about any other agencies. They're not like, you should go with small agency, you should go with big you should go with us. They were just like, we're like, well, this is what we can do for you. Do you want to work with us? And I was like, oh, I love that. Um, and then I and then I got the job, The Good Nurse with Darren Aronofsky mm-hmm. and Penny Dreadful with John Logan. And mm-hmm. then Sam Mendes was an exec producer on Penny Dreadful. So we met and then we did a couple of projects together and eventually it became 1917. Yeah. Which, which then is. after that, and Sam introduced me to Edgar. So I've been very lucky with having good friends and good like people around me that have like championed me. So Sam introduces you to Edgar in around, I want to say 2016. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the first time Edgar and I met, we went for dinner. Because um, Sam basically was like, he said to Edgar, do you know her? And said to me, do you know him? And I was like, I know of him. I'd love to meet him. And he's like, he's like, I'll tell him you're fun. And I was like, are you lying or am I fun? <laughs> um, but Sam introduced us. We went for dinner and it was the night of Brexit. It was the night the vote for Brexit had been announced. And I remember kind of like being, because I obviously am Scottish as well. So I voted Remain. I love Europe. Um, <laughs> and so did Edgar. We all voted Remain because we're not idiots. I'm sorry, <laughs> political. But um, so we we ended up kind of like meeting and being like just overwhelmed with sadness. <laughs> So we had this first meeting and then we we drowned our sorrows a little bit. And the bar we actually drank in was opposite my old apartment, which was above a strip club in Soho. And I I said to Edgar, oh, I lived above here like for five years. And he was like, I've got this idea about this like young girl that moves to Soho. Can I tell you about it? Um, So, yeah, so very like good. I'm glad we went to the Dean Street townhouse to have a drink. (laughs) Wild. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think Sam Mendes thought that you would eventually make a movie together or did he just Edgar said that he thought you'd be fast friends? I mean, I think for me, filmmaking at that level is 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 friendship as well. Like I think it's very important. I would I would consider Sam and Edgar both friends of mine in mm-hmm. the sense that you can be incredibly vulnerable with them and you can share your deep dark secrets and your painful memories in the hope that you can create a script together. Mm-hmm. Um 
so yeah i i think i think those things are hand in hand i, th- I think sam thought personality wise we would just gel um yeah. and that we would that we would have a laugh and also sam knows uh, especially back then loved a night out in soho <laughs> so <laughs> so, so we, we sort of i think that was the basis for it um and I remember when I told Sam that I was doing this with Edgar, because um, these these projects happened simultaneously. So I finished the script for 1917. I was still working on script for last night in Soho. We shot 1917. And then literally I would go from World War One trenches to 60s Soho and the sets each day. Like I go back and forth because Soho was shooting at night and 1917 was shooting in the day. So I would like drive from one studio to the next. So they, they really bookended. But I remember when I told Sam, oh, Edgar and I have this film. I'm really excited. He was like, well, my 10% commission should be paid to this bank account. Um, so I think I just bought him dinner instead. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to talk about how much of Eloise is you, because I know he had the idea before. And then the way he explained it to me was that he sort of sat down and started to write in Los Angeles and then just looked at the first page and went, I need to get Christy involved in this. <laughs> um, I mean, it's hard to... I think with a really good collaboration, you don't quite know where you end, where your work ends and their work begins. Um, and so like, you know, he had the story and it was very fleshed out. And I think I maybe pushed to have the 60s be really expanded because for me, female obsession is a very specific thing. It's not just about how a woman looks. Like I find the women I'm, for lack of a better term, attracted to or drawn to, it's not just that they're beautiful and sometimes they're not. It's more about their intelligence or their personality or like even just how they carry themselves or their ambition and I thought you know this is a film about a young girl having a girl crush on you know someone from the past and that that bond is the most important thing in the whole film yeah like and so for that to work I thought we massively expanded Sandy's character together but I mean Eloise there's loads a little bit of Eloise that are me like for instance she works at the Toucan I worked at the Toucan (laughs) um she lives in Soho I lived in Soho she came from a smaller place. I mean, Glasgow's not that small, but it's not London. Uh, and I like I moved to London when I was 22 and like a bit lost. And, and I remember what it was like to kind of go into, I went to film school, not art school, but they're very similar. They're very competitive, like um, environments with a lot of big personalities. So, you know, I definitely know a few Jocastas. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely uh, roomed with a few Jocastas. But um but yeah, and, and I suppose there's there's other little things like Ellie's grandmother, her being so close is very the same with me. My mom is thankfully doesn't have a gift and has not um, succumbed to that. So like we were very close as well. My gran was a seamstress in the 60s. Um, you know, the picture of the two of them outside the Criterion restaurant, that's actually my grandparents had a picture outside that restaurant from the 60s. Um, and when I asked them about it, many years ago, they're both past now. When I asked them about it, they were like, oh, we were too pretty inside. We just took the picture outside. So it's like stuff like that that you put in to your work that's like little snippets of you. And it, I mean, Edgar has the same, like so much, he's he's got a great, um, you know, that line in it, um, who put on this granny shit when they're listening to the kinks at the party? That happened to Edgar. <laughs> it was one of the first things he told me. He was like, I have this traumatic memory of like being at a girl's house that I had a crush on when I was 16 and I played the kinks and my friend turned around to everyone and went who the fuck plays this granny shit and he's like he's like, I've never got over it he's like I've never and that's like the stuff that you reveal to each other in the writer's room do you know what I mean like your deep torment um so there's like loads of little like I suppose fractions and segments of yourself that you infuse trying to make things feel real yeah 
That's... But fortunately, I was never trapped in the 60s nor witnessed uh, lots of horrible things. Like, I, uh, the, the worst thing that happened in my um, house was probably house parties that went awry. <laughs> mm. You have one of those in the movie. Yes, yeah, we bit. have a few of them. <laughs> he said that initially, um, Sandy, the Anya Taylor-Joy character, didn't talk. And yes. you were the one who said, you know, for us to fall in love with her, she really needs to talk. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, again, like what I said before, like that idea of like women don't necessarily fall in love with other women just because how they look, and neither do men. It's such a it's such a sweeping statement, and I think originally those sequences were just music, and and very dreamlike, like more dreamlike than they perhaps are in the script and in the finished film. They were much more surreal, and I think just to anchor those two characters because it is very much like Sandy and Eloise. They're mirrored. They're, they're juxtaposed and that's how you, we get to tell a lot of exposition as well using the two of them and how they're different um, mm. without being like really oblique. So that so having her be a fully speaking, living character. And also if you're going to care about this person, um, I'd love to hear their voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It The way they become, I don't even know if Sandy is infatuated with Eloise. It's more like Eloise is, from my, as a viewer, I felt like Eloise was infatuated with Sandy, but the way you show her becoming infatuated with her is just amazing. And there's so much sort of self-love involved. I mean, she sees herself or sees a potential version of herself. Yeah. I mean, you remember being like 18, 19, 20, I mean, I mean, 25, you name it, like, and moving somewhere and feeling like you don't belong, you're a fish out of water. And I mean, even before that, going to, going to school and stuff like that, just feeling like, God, I'm not cool. I'm not this person. And, and trying to work out who you are and who you are in this place and who you're going to be as an adult. And I remember, like, I remember that acutely when I was younger because I've always felt kind of out of place, um, like never quite in any world. And so like when I moved to London and I sort of found my people, um, everything clicked and I, I like fully became myself and I became a much more confident person. And, and in the process of that, you know, I probably like saw someone that I thought was cool and got my hair cut like them. And like, and like, and so much of this happened subconsciously, we were just putting an underline on it. So you can see like this idea of being drawn to being not necessarily someone else, but the best version of yourself, the ideal version of yourself, which I think is again into that sort of obsession idea. I mean, as you say that I'm wearing a striped shirt and I realized that the reason I wear striped shirts is because there was a guy when I was in high school who was like, not even a year older than me, a year younger than me, who always wore striped shirts and they always looked cool. And I totally stole it from them. See, that's the thing, right? Because it's like, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're older than younger because coolness is ageless, right? You're just like, you're like, oh. And it's, it's it's not about the striped shirt, right? Which we all come to learn and, and which Eloise learns in the movie. It's definitely not about being a bottle blonde. But um, it's, it's more about like an, an attitude to the world or a way that you engage with the world. And that's like unique to everyone. That's why there's no like, serum for coolness sadly <laughs> so working at the toucan um and it's toucan right yeah two- uh, I, I, at- I say it in a very scottish way but i think it's toucan <laughs> I, I i mispronounced it in a american way so sorry for that um <laughs> working there were you able to and you're working on scripts at the time were you kind of taking inspiration from the customers the way that always becomes kind of fascinated with the customers or was it just a job where you had enough time, downtime to write? Oh, no, I, I loved working at the bar because I think as a writer, you're a natural eavesdropper. 
um, and I also think the best way to write good dialogue is to listen to people um, and listen to people when they're not talking to you. So like, I remember, I, I, I mean, this is probably revealing me as a very nosy child, but I remember like being on the bus in Glasgow and like listening to ladies, old ladies talk behind me and they'd be like, oh, that's how old ladies, that's how some people talk. And like, and like listening. So I, I always sort of had a bit of a knack for dialogue because I'd done a lot of listening. Um, and I think in the bar, especially, you know, I grew up in Scotland. There's a certain way of speaking. There's a certain attitude. And in the centre of London, it's so multicultural. And then you get people from all over the world. And we had like all walks of life that would come in to get the best Guinness in London. Shout out to the Toucan. Um, like that, that you would listen to so many people's different attitudes and different social strata and just all across. And so it was, it was such an education for me. It also gave me huge amounts of time. And the owners of the bar, Colin and Carol, Carol's actually named in the, in the script um they were so supportive of me as a as someone who wanted to be a screenwriter even though that's sort of a ridiculous notion to most people um they they would let me like there's a downstairs bar at the token as you know from the film when i was down there and it was quiet they would let me sit on my laptop or my ipad or a notebook and write um and then they would also feed me (laughs) so and 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 we didn't pay for all the drink um because you know we stole from them (laughs) um so it was really like it was a place in which I could engage with the world I could engage with my writing and and kind of be serious about it but also still like have a roof over my head and make a living and not be a completely starving artist just a kind of hungry artist (laughs) oh if I could ask a question about the 1917 script yeah Uh, because I have to ask about that it's just an incredible movie and it's a script different than any other there are almost no, there are scene headings, but there are very few scene headings compared to a normal script. And I'm just wondering, when you were writing that, did you know this was going to be one shot from beginning to end? Did you write it that way? Did you, what what things did you have to discover in writing that script that is so different from every other script? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it was from the very first conversation I had with Sam. He phoned me up. He was like, I want to do a World War One film. And I was like, great. I'm like a massive, massive history nerd. Uh, and the two world wars are like my sort of like all my books in my room that I read for fun or that because I'm a weirdo again. <laughs> um, and yeah, we, and he talked about a bit about his grandfather carrying a letter through no man's land. And it was so atmospheric and I understood it. And then he was like, and it's all going to be one shot. And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, see you Tuesday and hung up on me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think he wanted to explain it in person. And I remember thinking, I was like, I wonder if he's serious about that. And then I knew it was Sam Mendes. I was like, of course he's serious about that, like the ambition of it. And and actually, Sam and I wrote that script on spec, which means no one paid us to write it um, yeah. speculatively because we didn't know if it was going to work. Um, like we didn't know if, first of all, you could a story could hold for 100 minutes, 107 minutes without any cuts. Um, and that narratively speaking, that you could even achieve a war through that lens. So yeah, we always knew, we always knew it was going to be one shot. And I remember the first time I sat down to write the first page, I Googled one shot film scripts and I couldn't find it. I know, I know there's some movies out there, but I couldn't find the scripts for any of them apart from Rope. And that's very kind of like set and specific. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to make this up as I go along. So I sort of had a rule where I was like, I put scene headings in when we had moved to a new location, but there would be no cuts. So there's very few scene headings because we, you know, everything's in real time. And like the, 
there's it's a lot of fun to do a one-shot film, especially when you're working with like Sam Mendes, Roger Deakins, Dennis Gassner, the producers Jane Ann Tengren and Pippa Harris. Like when you work with people like that who are giant brains, um, things are achievable. But there's certain stuff in the script that you just have to be aware of. So you can't have exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can't ever cut away to show what anyone else cares about. So so that you start off by being like, well, this is how people experience life. We live without cuts. So people understand this better than cinema and the suspension of disbelief is much thinner. Um, so any exposition, the very first draft we wrote, the rule was no exposition. And then I phoned up Sam about 20 pages in and I was like, some exposition. And he was like, okay, some exposition. And so we like just trying to find ways to put that in. And a lot of it, like, I mean, with this last night, and so it was about juxtaposing characters who you understand their differences and in the spaces you fill as an audience member um, and having little fragments. So exposition was frankly a massive ball ache, <laughs> um, real problem. Um, and then the other thing that you get to is, and this was sort of maybe after we'd written the first draft and we got into rehearsals um, with the actors because we did six months of rehearsals, you would have a scene um, where you would be like, well, these are the, you know, in every scene, you've got a few bits of dialogue. That you're like, these are the bits of dialogue where emotion really shines through. These are the bits that you want to be close on that actor. You want to be a foot away from them, right? And if you had them too close together, the camera had to swing. And as soon as the camera swings, you know the camera's there. So then it was about reshaping scenes so that you would be like, well, these important points, but then still making them feel naturally. And then literally considering the movement of the camera in the space. And then trying to describe that in the script in a way that wouldn't overwhelm the emotion of the script. So like never talking about the camera. So we did a lot of, um, you know, if it was a wide shot, you wouldn't say wide shot, you'd you'd be like, you know, Blake and Schofield move across the landscape, which you that in your head feels wide, right? And then if you want to be close up, you, you could have something like a single tear rolls down his cheek because then the camera feels really intimate. So a lot of it was like trying to do that. Um, and, and then at the same, yeah, it was, it's a very difficult script to write. And, and it's also, I'm, it's one of the things I'm most proud of because I think it's a script that doesn't in any way draw attention to itself. Like, and actually every department on 1917 the whole thing that we were trying to do was disappear. Like we were going for ultimate naturalism. Um, and that's like one of the things I love because it's so not egotistical. <laughs> like if you look at Roger and Sam and everything like that, and they, they should have giant egos because they're absolute titans of cinema. But what they were trying to do with this was be completely transparent and not there. Um, and like never feel the author's hand or the director's hand or the cinematographer's hand. And that's that takes a lot of work and effort and big brains. <laughs> Bigger than mine. I just had to do the writing. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I feel like you just dropped a really incredible piece of screenwriting advice when you mentioned the single tier, because yes. so many screenwriters struggle with, do I give camera direction or is that pretentious? Well, the, oh, I, also just, the, thing, the thing I would say to any screenwriter, there's never a right camera direction in it because First of all, when you are giving someone a script to read, the the dream version is that they play the movie in their head, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to have anything that's technical be as like removed as possible. Like I, 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 when I'm doing titles and anything like that, like scene headings, I try and make them kind of like blend into the background as much so you can just not read them. Um, Because you want people to just be playing the film, like, you know, like literally the sound of film running through their head. Um, And so like, I think films should, scripts in that case should be very visual um i also like i believe in writing to all the senses so i'll describe sounds and smells and and, like noises i'll do all of that even stuff that won't make 
the final script, I think in the early drafts should be in there because it gives you a sense of texture yeah. um, and it lets you ground it. And I also think when a producer reads something like that and they get sucked in, they're more likely to start opening that checkbook and writing zeros. <laughs> um, ideally starting with a big number and then zeros, but sometimes just zeros. Um, <laughs> so you, you must write visually and any camera movement destroys that, breaks the illusion. Like think of it when you're telling a child a story you know what right. I mean like you don't go and then and then I move the camera around and then the princess finds the pea like it's not you you would never do that you would never break that covenant of storytelling um so don't do it in a script either and like some directors can do it and like hey more power to them because like they're writing to, don't necessarily need to have um a document that they're kind of like collaborating on um, so like, yeah, I suppose it's different for them, but I think for writers, like never, I, I, it's, it's my pet hate in scripts when you, when you see a camera direction, we, we move in close. No, thank you. <laughs> well, I love to just say, you know, you see a single tear or some detail that you could only see from a certain camera yes. perspective because you are doing it without doing it, which is. Yeah, that's brilliant. it. Exactly. I'm manipulating them. That's what I love to do. <laughs> that's all, that's all script writing is. It's just manipulation. <laughs> What was the biggest challenge of Soho? Um, you know, for me, from a script writing point of view, the biggest challenge was balancing how much time we spend in the 60s and how much time we spend in the current narrative. Um, that's like a tightrope act because too far in one direction, you lose either of the women. Um, so that that was it. And that's something that you just refine and rewrites. Like you start going like, I think I think this is the right amount, like instinctively. And then you sit with let's sit with Edgar and we, we go through it and we'd be like, no, this is starting to pull too much. No, this is getting too heavy. And it's uh, yeah, you're literally just trying to sort of balance. Um, and that's the hardest thing, just because there's no roadmap for it. And you're never quite sure you've got it right until the editor's finished. <laughs> That was Christy Wilson-Kierens. Love talking to her, especially the five-minute block where she just t absolutely took everybody to school on screenwriting. I thought that was incredibly cool. And I know I'm going to rewind and listen to that again and again, <laughs> personally. Uh, if you enjoyed this, you might want to pick up the latest issue of Movie Maker Magazine with Edgar Wright and Thomas and McKenzie on the cover, talking about Last Night in Soho with a prominent uh, section devoted to Christy Wilson-Kierens. We'd also love for you to stop by moviemaker.com as often as you like. There are a great many stories about Last Night in Soho that you'll probably want to check out. And of course, the film is in theaters this Friday, October 29th, and you're really going to want to see it in a theater if that's at all possible for you. Thanks very much. I'm Tim Malloy for Movie Maker. See you back here very soon.